0: Synchronized is sponsored by the Production Music Association, the leading advocate and voice of the production music community. Become a member and help us to fulfill our mission. Go to pmamusic.com and click on membership for more info and to sign up. And hello
1: again, uh, Synchronized episode 33. Simon, good to see you again.
2: Hi, Ferry. Yeah, very good to see you too. How's things you, over there?
1: Yeah, it's fine. You, you, you dress very casually and it's like you're in, in, in the middle of the summer.
2: Short sleeves. We've moved the seasons around in England. We now have summer quite early. Okay.
1: Um, Yeah. Well, maybe maybe I should move to the UK then.
2: Yeah. Because it's bloody cold. Are you still locked down for it? Because we're open now. We're loving it. I have no idea
1: what we are, Simon. I I stopped watching the news. So I see people on the street and think, okay, you can go outside now. You know, it's like, that's that's the easy way to do it. We've got uh, two interesting guests uh, this time. I think we've always got interesting guests, but these two... Um, they approached us and they, they said something in an email which kind of triggered my, my interest because it was production music and um, academics. And I thought, this, this is going to be a great episode. So it's Julia Durand and Toby Yulin Hi, guys. Good to see you.
0: Hi. Thanks Hi. so much for having us.
1: Yeah. You're Welcome. You intrigued us with with your message, so uh, before we're going to talk about that, I would love to hear uh, what you've done in the past and how you ended up in the wonderful production music industry. And I want to start with Julia, if that's okay. So Julia, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And again, like Debbie said, thank you for having us. What I did in the past was that I've I've been studying music or working in music in some form or another, uh, more or less since I was five. (laughs) And I was I nearly uh, I studied composition and nearly became either a composer or a professional pianist. But I ended up going for musicology instead because I had a lot more fun that way. And I'm currently a researcher and a PhD candidate at the Nova University of Lisbon. Finishing my PhD, although you should never say finishing a PhD, that's a little bit too optimistic, and uh, on library music. And my research specializes in the sociology of music, and I've been researching library music for about seven years now. The first disclaimer I should do is that I'm not looking at it from an economics or a business angle, it's more from a perspective of the sociology of music and musicology. And so I've been mostly interviewing uh, composers on one hand, other people who work with library music and video editors as well, just to try to understand their personal experiences with it, how they compose it, how they use it, uh, how they compare it to other kinds of music, that sort of thing. And as for uh, the question of how I got into library music, um, I first came across library music as, uh, well, realising that it could be a fascinating topic to study When I did a research project on music in audiovisual pornography, and I realised that all of the music used in the examples that I was looking at was library music. But when I started trying to look more into it and find more academic sources on it, I found very little. And I thought that was intriguing, considering the enormous amount of music that it is. But uh, yeah, that's how I got into it. And I guess that, you know, getting into studying library music by the way of studying pornography is as good a way of getting into it as any.
1: I I was about (laughs) to say the same thing. Maybe that's also the reason why you didn't find a lot of um, things on on that when you were researching it. I don't think a lot of people would admit that they are interested in production music because Mm -hmm. they've watched porn, right?
3: Exactly. Even, yeah. even few people interested, you know, admitting that they're interested in production music, and even less admitting that they're interested in researching porn, So I think that's that's a niche I've found there. But yeah, that's how I first got into it. Excellent.
1: I think you already uh, earned some brownie points here by I admitting mean, yeah, <laughs> that you got into this industry. Toby, how about you?
0: Um, yeah, so I guess some similarities, some some differences. Um, so yes, yeah, so I did kind of a traditional kind of serious um, music, music degree um, and then um, a bit like Julia was kind of saying, I was mainly a pianist and a, a composer really as well. Um, and I, I sort of moved to London and did a master's in composition in London. And part of that master's, it was a kind of a classical composition master's, so a lot of kind of writing string quartets, vocal ensembles, all that good stuff. And as part of that, um, we did a module on music for media. And as part of that small module, as part of this degree, we had one lecture that was on production music. Um, and up to this point, I was probably about 22, maybe 21, 22 at this point. I had no idea what it was. And going into this, you know, using words like library music, oh, what, what, what is this? I, I really sort of it wasn't something that had crossed my path at all. Um, at this point and I think that's the the same for lots and lots of people Um, but as part of that we were we were sort of set the odd assignment to kind of try and write your own piece of library music based on a a brief that the tutor had kind of come up with and and we sort of learned a little bit about the industry and that was my kind of interest in it sort of as as a composer and then I sort of started writing library music writing for various um, catalogues kind of learning what was required and learning what 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 made a good track that kind of People would want to to use and all, all that kind of stuff, as, as we all know. Um, and then after you know a year or two of sort of uh, writing lots, I kind of thought, oh, isn't it interesting that there's there's nothing much really written about this? Um, there's a little bit of work out there, but there's th- there's not much at all. Wouldn't it be interesting to kind of have a look at that? Um, and then skip forward a few years, and yeah, I'm in my sort of final-ish year of a PhD at the University of Leeds. Um, and my research particularly looks at production music in British TV. So I'm looking at kind of contemporary TV, but particularly um, kind of BBC ITV channel for those kind of broadcasters and looking at the kinds of libraries they use, what tracks get used where, um, and all those sorts of things. So Toby, Toby, in your research,
2: d- does anybody show you their cue sheets? I mean, have you got access to BBC cue sheets, for instance?
0: yeah so obviously i have um i can have a look at my own key sheets and things and 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 people have been people have been generous in kind of sharing various things things with me um and i can kind of go into going to come kind of some of the sort of prs files as well but obviously i that's just kind of for my own own interest
1: so, so what are you trying to look for when you uh, research the usage of production music on British TV, is it that you're interested in why a certain piece of music was used in a certain programme or is it something else? Yes,
0: yeah, so there's, there's different aspects to it. I think one aspect is looking at the production process. So thinking, you know, what is that life, as it were, of a track from that initial point of the brief, um, whether that's from the composer, whether that's from the library, um, all the way through composition, it, it goes live in the library, it gets picked up by, you know, an editor, whoever it might be, it gets placed into a TV show, etc., etc., etc. What are all the different stages in that process, and who are all the different people that are involved at all those different stages, up to the point where you know it, it gets it gets to a view and gets to an audience? Um, and what I'm particularly yeah. interested in that is thinking about how how a track might change at all those different stages, because um, often when we think about um, media music and think about kind of film composers and these kind of things we often think of the composer as kind of the the singular person who's in charge of everything who makes all the decisions and of course we all know that that's that's not the case but i think there's still that kind of mindset that the composer is kind of the the person in charge um, and it's really interesting, I think, with library music, it's a great example of thinking about how all these different people um, can affect a track, for example, by just using, you know, certain stems and, and effectively kind of making, making an own, their own track out of the stems or cutting that into a particular way into a programme or, or whatever it might be. Or, you know, the commissioning editor comes in at the last minute and says, actually, we hate that track. Let's change That's it. Great. Um, and then the show and the use of music in that show ends up being something very different from even what the, the director or, or the editor initially intended. Um, and certainly very different from what the composer might have anticipated where, where, where the music was used. Um, so, that yeah, production process is one kind of big aspect of it. So, guys, um, you know, being in the
2: business, we're in a state of real change at the moment. So are you looking from a historic with a historical perspective or are you really just looking at now and the future
3: um, I, I don't know if I, well, uh, maybe I could start by talking about this because it's it's interesting because Toby is looking at like more the case of British TV, like he said, and I'm I'm looking more specifically at the production use of library music for online media, more specifically. So that is kind of the new world that we're we're not really moving into. We've already well moved into and settled into it, uh, and I'm so I'm not really I'm not looking at it from a historical perspective except for maybe to try to compare what's uh, remained relatively unchanged, both in how people produce uh, library music and how they use it uh, before you know you have this transition to the internet, to digital medium, to the web 2.0. So what's remained relatively unchanged there? And on the other hand, what's changed dramatically in how um, people produce it and use it? And one of the most uh, dramatic changes, I think, is that Nowadays, you have this enormous amount of new people who come into contact with library music and who use it in videos who never did before, who are hobbyists or just, you know, your average social media user, You're just non-professional or semi-professional um, person. Who doesn't have any professional experience in audiovisual production, but who, you know, is looking for a library music track to synchronize to their 10-second clip of their cat that they filmed on their phone to then upload onto YouTube or some other platform. And that's one of the main differences that are one of the main changes that I've been looking at at how things are currently and and what that means for how library music is composed and used as well. And you know, in, in this podcast, you've talked a lot about some of the changes that that's brought. So I think you know that best better than anyone. <laughs>
1: well, 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 basically, what I, what I'm hearing here, Julia, is that you're saying that we're kind of moving from a business to business model to a business yep. to consumer model. Am I correct? I th-
3: yeah, I think that's more and more the case because uh, I think it was I think it was Alex Black. I, I hope I'm not wrong. Who said in a previous episode of Synchronized that you, you you have you know a limited number of professionals working on visual who use library music, but you have an infinite number of hobbyists, and I think that's absolutely spot on. And that does bring very dramatic changes to to the industry. And, you know, some of the ones you've you've spoken about a lot in this podcast, what that means in terms of licenses, licenses that are more adapted to online media, to how videos are published in online media, and how that's very unpredictable and uncontrollable. Uh, But other changes are more, you know, at the level of how, like Toby was saying, how is the same track uh, used in different contexts? Because now you'll just have someone who makes, for instance, a a video with conspiracy theories and who then uses a library track to kind of improve their video or convey their message. And they're just a hobbyist. They're just your average person who uploads a video onto YouTube. And that's, yeah, that's, I think, one of the most dramatic differences.
2: So what's what's forcing them to use library music, Julia, rather than any music? I mean what what is what are why are they going to libraries why are they not just using the latest Adele track what's stopping them
3: well, that's what they that's what they did mostly you know kind of on in the early days of platforms like like youtube and where people didn't didn't yet have a very good awareness of like the legal constraints of synchronizing uh music to picture. And when things started to settle down and more legal systems like the content ID system on YouTube started to you know, come into effect and more and more people started to realise, okay, we can't just use the latest Adele track and, and upload it on to, to use it on our video. That's when they turned to library music, but especially to the new royalty-free models that are really more specifically geared towards uh, online media. So it's mostly a matter of convenience and speed but mostly of you know trying to play it safe legally so trying not to get their video blocked because they're using this track from uh you know from commercial music and just go for a library license instead
2: so what happens when you I mean I haven't done this but if you used Adele on your latest home video of your cat does Adele's (laughs) does Adele's publisher Take it down, or they just sit back and enjoy the massive amount of uh, <laughs> advertising <laughs> revenue that pours in.
3: The amounts, the massive amount of revenue cat-generated yes. revenue. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I well, it depends, uh, but both can happen. But mostly nowadays, you'll, they will just monetize the video, and like you said, sit back and enjoy the the cat revenue. <laughs> from so, so,
2: are you saying then that, that that kind of the libraries had their chance to kind of get in there, but now, in fact, the commercial publishers and record companies have just spotted actually we can have as much of this as we like.
3: It's. I think it's a bit of everything. I think it's a combination of of that and of different sides of. Of the music industry adapting to that new reality, and we always speak of the music industry you know as if it's just one kind of it's all the same thing with the same purposes. it's not It's many different industries uh, and I think it's it's a little bit of everything, and of course it's not that the library music industry missed out on that opportunity because you have a lot of new libraries that cropped up specifically to try to get into that market. How they did that is you know another question.
1: Well, that's an interesting thing. You said there are new libraries um, creeping into that market. Uh, the old market, and maybe you can tell me a little bit more about that, Toby, uh, it is more um, being served by the traditional production music libraries. Am I correct? Or do you also see the, the libraries that are geared for the YouTube usage also entering the market now of the established broadcast uh, and the TV world?
0: Well, certainly from... Um you know, the kinds of things I've been looking at in kind of British TV over the past kind of five years or so. Um, you're certainly seeing, you know, the vast majority is the kind of traditional in inverted commas libraries. And actually, on the whole, sort of three or four of the same libraries uh, coming up time and time again. Um, but it's interesting, those odd occasions where you do perhaps notice there's a track from Epidemic or whoever it might be on Channel 4, um, and you think, okay, that's so interesting because that's a, such a different model of, of licensing and everything, um, as we all know. And it's so interesting to see that perhaps starting to creep into um, some of these more traditional, in some cases, very traditional kind of broadcast models. Um, it's a really kind of, that 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 I found quite surprising.
1: But do you have evidence for that, that it's increasing?
0: Um I'm not sure if it's increasing. I would suggest that it might be, but certainly there's evidence that it, that it is there.
2: Toby, when you say you see the same three libraries sort of occupying the space, really, is that does that go in sort of waves of popularity, and does that change, or do you see kind of certain libraries that are always popular with the big broadcasters and others that are not? Um, is that?
0: Yeah, I mean. Yeah, without sort of getting into too many sp- specific uh, from the, kind, the kinds of research I've been looking at. And obviously one of the, the issues is, is, is around materials um, for us. Although I'm a composer, you know, from the kind of outside, as it were, looking in, it is sometimes quite difficult to get a sense of exactly what is used, exactly when and, and to kind of what we what really need is these kind of massive data sets of kind of millions and millions of key sheet records. Um, that's, that's, that's what would be great. Um, but certainly, there does seem to be some consistency in the in, in the kinds of, the kinds of libraries that are used, and I think part of that is also due to the consistency in the kinds of programming that you're always going to need. You know, dramedy pizzicato for you know all, whatever and light investigative tension and, and all these kind of things. And editors will keep going back to the same the same libraries that they that they work with.
2: So, Toby, we just just drilling down on your research techniques. So. I mean, obviously, you'd like these massive data sets. What rights do you have as a British citizen to look at the BBC's cue sheets and things? Do you have any rights? I mean, is it um, their courtesy to show you them? Or can you use freedom of information and to find out? Or how, I mean, how do you go about it?
0: That's a good question. I, I don't know about the freedom of information side of things. Um, people have been generous and kind of you know, give, giving me information, these kind of things. Um, and as I said, I have some information from my own kind of work and these sort of things. Um, but there's a lot of kind of uh, sort of sort of watching, talk, talking to lots of people, matching up sort of tracks that you hear within a show and the tracks on the library and particularly thinking about um, almost trying to reverse engineer the kind of edit process. So thinking about, okay, here's, here's the full track on whatever library it might be here's the one minute that's used in an episode of whatever. Did, how do those two, two things match up? Are they using stems? They, have they cut the track in a particular way? Um, so kind of doing that almost reverse engineering, but then doing lots of interviews as well um, and doing some kind of more musical analysis, as it were. So thinking about harmony, tonality, uh, sort of motifs and these kind of things.
1: Um, have, you, have you been able to be like a fly on the wall so that you were able to follow the whole process from, from nearby? Or...
0: Um, yeah, from the sense of sort of try interviewing all the people that are involved, say, with with, with sort of one project, that kind of thing. Um, so that's that's been really interesting and, and really useful um, or, or, or interviewing sort of clusters of people that work closely together over a longer period of time. Um, so, so you can kind of say uh, you, you can see, see how these things um, work together, which has been great, because I think, you know, from the academic side, but also from the composer side, you know, you send off your tracks and you think, oh, great, I'm quite happy with those. And then, you know, you might see it in your statement, but but that's sort of it. So actually just not even thinking about research, but just from my own knowledge of a composer, I feel like it's really helped me sort of know, talking to a lot of editors and directors and these kind of things has really helped from that side of things as well.
1: Toby, Because just, one of the biggest... Sorry, sorry. Uh, mean, But one of the biggest questions that, that I always have um, and that we also discuss within Blink label, is how do you make sure your track ends up in a TV show? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure you can't give me a formula for that, but what do you think is the most important thing? Is it the quality of the music? Is it the access to the music? Is it the title of the track?
0: Yeah, imagine if I just was like, right, so here's here's the answer. I've done three Well, years of that's, that's what we're waiting for.
1: That's what we're waiting there for. Isn't. I know the
0: answer to that. I know the answer to that. very <laughs> <thing. laughs> I mean, I mean, what's the answer? I want to
2: know the answer now. (laughs) I know it. Uh, Which is okay. The reason I started up music for sport was because my agent said you're getting quite a lot of commissions from people who don't have big enough budgets to pay for the titles music and the incidental music. What we'll do, we'll charge them for the the titles music, and you'll have your own library. Of, in, of incidental music we can t- put in there. so that's that's one way that you can get your music on a guarantee to get it on a TV program is get work as a commissioned composer on shows that don't have a big enough budget to to commission all the music. I mean that, that just a it's a bit facetious that but that's a fact. So early on I, I could guarantee that I got my albums on on TV because of exactly that. And I mean, many famous programs on British TV that are now classics didn't have enough music initially, enough money initially for Series One to f- fully score them. So they were they used a lot of library music in Series One. They were successful, so Series Two, Three, etc., became fully scored. So you're not interviewing me, Toby. What's the It's <laughs> an
0: interesting question as well about sort of um, definitions. You know, if a program is creating its own kind exactly. of bespoke library, that's kind of at least in the first instance, at, just for that programme, um, there's this interesting kind of blurred line between library and bespoke. And I think particularly yeah. when we look at things like, um, in the US, things like Bleeding Fingers, um, the, the, these, these things between what's a production house and what's production music made in-house or whatever <laughs> is, is kind of becomes an interesting, um, an interesting question.
2: Well, don't you think it asks an interesting question of what distinct, you know, is the difference between commercial music and library music simply the contract? And the rate, mm-hmm. I mean, is there something intrinsically different between the two art forms? I mean, what would you say, Julia?
3: Well, I think it's kind of also what Ferry was saying earlier of, um, or sorry, I don't know who was saying it earlier of, isn't this becoming more going from business to business to more uh, business to individual uh, kind of thing? And I think that's, I think the way this is headed is, um Those boundaries between what's production music, what's commercial music, they are, I think... Fading progressively. And for instance, you can see that on, you know, with the fact that today you have people who go on to YouTube or Spotify and listen to tracks, library tracks that are there, and just for the pleasure of listening to them, which would have been unthinkable, you know, not not so long ago, where you would have been very clearly, no, this is just for professionals to use in media, and then you have um, commercial music. And I think that that's an experiment that I would love to do, really, in terms of research. But I still haven't had had a chance to do it. To just take a, a library track, a production music track, and take you know another kind of music, perhaps bespoke music made for for a film, and play it to people out of context, and go, well, which which one is it? Can you tell which one is the library track and which one is the bespoke? And my. Guess, of course, it isn't, isn't very professional to say this, but um, my guess is that they likely wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So I think it's very contextual, really, um, and that the boundaries are blurring more and more between what's library music, what's commercial music, what's bespoke and all of that. But, but
1: don't you think it also has to do with the fact that if we're moving to a business-to-consumer uh, market, consumers have no idea what production music is. To mm-hmm. them, it's music. They don't care Absolutely. whether it's...
3: Absolutely, 100%. Th- it's, yeah, it's completely that. And I think, for instance, when you, uh, so, so an interesting side of that phenomenon is, for instance, people who, uh, well, they're fans, they're effectively fans of epic trailer music, and who, you know, just upload compilations of epic library music tracks onto YouTube and add some background art, and then those videos have millions of views. Um and they don't necessarily know what that music is. Like you said, they don't necessarily know that what's production music, where has this come from. To them, it's just epic music and they're fans. And so they're uploading these compilations onto YouTube, but they're not really aware of the difference or what it even is, 100%.
0: One um, really interesting example that came up in something I was looking at was um, the, the Channel 4 series, the travel series, travel Man. I don't know if you know, it. um, it's just a kind of Travel program with Richard Ayuazi, and he often makes references in that to, you know, now the camera's panning here, or now we'll cut to this shot, like sort of references to to kind of parts of the the, the editing, basically. And there's one episode of that where I nearly fell off my chair watching it, where he refers to the unmotivated urgency that only library music can suggest, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's part of the narrative of the program. <laughs> and um, that was sort of that kind of that was kind of the catalyst for my whole phd in a way because i was like that's so weird um, but i think it, it ties in exactly to to what Julia was just talking about because it's this question of who is that reference for okay if he's talking about cutting he's talking about editing they're kind of people know what that means but when he's referring to library music is there this sense that people understand library music is like a thing that has a certain meaning perhaps it's kind of cheesy perhaps it's nostalgic perhaps it's kind of vintage perhaps that's the kind of um that's the kind of associations that they're trying to create by by using that in in part of the um the narrative of the show um but certainly it kind of it really draws your attention to it um and and I haven't found I haven't found too many examples like that so if anyone knows of any <laughs> um that would be that would be wonderful but I think that's such a kind of such an interesting example of of this, this sort of, like, library music or production music sort of coming to the fore. And he did call it library music rather than any, anything else as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 I completely got it
2: because there was a point at which music that was designed to do trailers, massively dramatic music, was being used by cookery programmes to move, uh, you know, a yeah. hot, yes. cross, hot cross bun from one piece of table yeah. to to the cooker. <laughs> you know, and they, you're absolutely right, it. totally unmotivated, um, <laughs> lazy, trying to make, uh, you know, something that's not interesting look massively important. So, I mean, I really get what you say. I wish I'd yeah. seen that. It was for me that joke. You know, like, I'll send you the clip. Yeah, <laughs> but, but
1: that, that example that... is is not about the quality of the music. It's about how it's being used.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the kind of tra- the scene transition that's happening there and the, the, everything else that's going on. So, yeah. But I thought that was a great kind of, yeah, library music in the foreground rather than the background.
3: <laughs> I think I that, th- that, that example... Oh, sorry, Ferry. Go-, go, no, no, go. go ahead, Julia. No, it was just, I was thinking what Simon was saying of the, you know, the use of really epic, dramatic uh, library music in cooking shows. So like, you know, oh no, like the, the, the cake is burning or something of the sorts and they have epic trailer music behind Uh, I think that's one of the cases where it would be really interesting to be able to trace, like Toby was saying earlier, just the life of a track from the moment where it's just, you know, a composer creates it and then it's tagged and then someone chooses it and incorporates it into a programme, like a cooking programme, and to compare, for instance, well... How is it uh, tagged in this catalogue with, like, action, epic, trailer, drama? And then it ends up, you know, as background music to some little cupcakes that are coming out of the oven. And that, I think, is really a fascinating thing. And, of course, tags... We we keep talking about how, you know, keywords and titles are extremely important in, in library music, and they are. But it's also important to remember that they're not... You know, they don't prescribe where a track is going to end up. And sometimes... Trying to compare those two realities is fascinating and also really exasperating because like Toby was saying, it's very hard to sometimes you hear a track in a program and to try to locate where that came from unless you manage to somehow directly contact the people who are involved in that production is just impossible.
2: What happens if you Shazam it? Does Shazam show up library music or not?
3: It has. Occasionally. I, it has <laughs> occasionally, yeah, exactly. Occasionally, if, if some people, it's, it's happened to me with a few very popular audio network tracks mm-hmm. that are used everywhere from BBC programs to YouTube videos and who have people who, for some reason, you know, re-uploaded them onto YouTube. And so Shazam was able to detect that. But it's, it's very rare, sadly, because that would be just a lifesaver. <laughs> but, yeah.
1: Now well, the interesting thing about the example that you gave about the, the the Cookery show is that I'm pretty sure that the composer, when he wrote the track, was thinking about the Marvel universe and not the great <laughs> British bake-off. Yeah. So is that a misunderstanding between the composer and the producer or the audio engineer, the editor of the show, or...?
2: But isn't, it, isn't it the unsung hero in all this, which is the editors, who, who are really yeah.
3: <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. geniuses,
2: and, you know, that guy might have just... <laughs> done a promo for the next you know six nations rugby show and he's thought that music will be great when the hot cross bun goes from there to there and you know so i, I think a lot of what, what is used is that it's obviously down to the choice of of the production company but also the the engineer who under pressure suddenly has to pull something out of the bag and the, the producer will say you know when the hot cross bun moves from there that's really boring can we oh yes i just did this rugby thing this morning puts it in and it looks amazing uh <laughs> So I mean, we must interview a few editors, Ferry, at some point. Because I, I think yeah, because it's very interesting because,
1: I mean, w- what do you do with your tagging? I mean, I'm pretty sure the tagging is completely wrong here. If you would use search engines for a cooking show, you wouldn't end up with this track. So the, the, there's someone in the middle who mm-hmm. is lost in translation or was having fun.
2: That's also yeah. a possibility. Yeah. I, I
1: mean, we
3: are... I, I, I don't... We are. <coughs> We play
2: music, don't we? we that's, you know, that's why I feel a privilege to be a musician, because we play for a living. But also the e- editors, they play. They're playing with sound. And I think that's why you end up with these marvelous kind of uh,
0: juxtapositions
2: in, in things, which sometimes are marvelous. Sometimes they're like, oh, no, please. you know.
0: <laughs> Synchronized is sponsored by Ames, an AI-based music similarity search created by seasoned production music insiders. Ames has also launched auto-tagging, So visit AmesAPI.com to get 100 tracks tagged for free. And and I think one thing that often can be sort of overestimated sometimes by composers maybe is the amount of time that editors don't have to spend like looking at their music and listening and thinking, oh, what a wonderful track that is. And of course, we all know that, but it's easy to forget that, you know, flicking through hundreds and hundreds of tracks, dragging something in, does that work? Oh, I've got a deadline in half an hour. Yes, that's fine. You know, let's come back to it. Oh, we ran out of time. We're not going to come back to it. But but it worked because I you know I I'm good at being an editor and I can kind of mould it around the scene. Um, yeah. But once I've got that one track, let's just let's just get it to work. If it doesn't work, take it out. Try another one. You know. Um, and I think it's easy from the composer's perspective to think, oh well, they they're going to be like cutting up all the stems and isn't that wonderful? Isn't that lovely? Of course, that does happen a lot. But I think when we're thinking about um, th- these kind of formatted uh, TV shows where you know, there's sort of 24 episodes in a, in a, in a series or whatever, and it's kind of wall to war music, pretty much. That's, that's not necessarily the case. Um, so it's yeah. making the music as accessible as possible, I guess, both in terms of the tagging, but also in terms of the, the sound of it. But does yeah. it also
1: have to do with the fact that uh, a lot of those reality TV shows are actually boring, nothing's really happening? Whoa. So they think, oh, we're going to spice it up with really exciting music.
3: That, that's why you need the epic music for the cupcakes. It's you know it's to really spice things up.
1: Okay, so is is it an idea to have as a title "Epic Cupcake Music"?
3: <laughs> I think that one will be in a library somewhere next month, guaranteed. Okay,
0: but you, need, you need a good you need a good pun though. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. We, we,
1: we were talking um, because we had a pre meeting uh, yesterday, and uh, I was talking to Toby and Julia, and we we're talking about. Does the title have effect on how much revenue a track is generating, right? And we, we kiddingly said that well, maybe we should come up with a title during this uh, recording <laughs> that we're going to put out on a, on a label and see if it generates actually a lot of money. So epic cupcake music. <laughs>
2: that-
3: yes, I think that's the one.
2: It's a new gonna- <laughs> write, it <down. laughs>
3: write it down because that's, that's the winning one. <laughs> One thing I was thinking. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead.
2: No, I was going to move it slightly laterally. So carry on.
3: No, it's 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 related. Well, it's related to you know a title that can really earn you a lot of money. But it's also because I was thinking about that after we we spoke about it yesterday, and I was thinking about something a little related, which is uh, something that I've been noticing more and more in in royalty free catalogs, um, which is not the titles but the keywords of of tracks. And I've seen, well, you know, there's the very old strategy of choosing titles or keywords that kind of direct the track to some, a current event or something that's having a lot of media coverage. So you think, oh, well, I have lots of editors who go into a catalogue and look for something for the, the Olympics, like the Olympic Games or something. Uh, but what's happening a lot in these these catalogues more and more is that you have people who are constantly repackaging their tracks by changing the keywords that they'll always be kind of up to date with a certain event and one of the one of the examples I came across was I think it was either Pond 5 or Audio Jungle but I think it was Audio Jungle um, where I found an arrangement of uh, just a short bit of Mozart's Requiem and the keywords had something like uh, funeral, death, uh, mourning, something like that and then the COVID-19 pandemic came and they added onto those tracks, uh, to those keywords, um, COVID, corona, virus, apocalypse. So they kind of repackaged the track, uh, and this keeps happening. So maybe it's not so much the formula, you know, winning formula for a title, but perhaps it's also just in the keywords and always repackaging the keywords. Who knows?
1: Add epic cupcake music to every track.
3: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You were also telling me yesterday um, that Trump is a keyword.
3: Yes. <laughs> and Donald that amazed me. Trump, yes. Donald yep. Trump is a keyword.
0: So this was, um, um, yeah, this is a, a piece of research that I think, Julia, was it the first thing that we did kind of together, the first sort of co-authored?
3: Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: And we saw there was this this conference that came up, and the conference theme was Trump and the media. Um, and we thought, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Um, started as you do, just kind of go and bring up a few library catalogs and search for Trump, Donald Trump, whatever. Um, and actually, there were quite a lot of results. Um, and the more and more we looked into this, we thought, oh, actually, this is this is a really interesting area to see what what tracks have libraries been tagging with the keyword Donald Trump. Um, and that was sort of the basis for this uh, for this research paper, which hopefully is being published um, hopefully later this year. Um, and it was really interesting to, to look at the sorts of the ways, the kinds of tracks tracks in terms of the musical style, but also in terms of the tagging for, you know, companies where they'd uploaded the tracks, say, five or six years ago. Or even before that, you know, where, where, when Trump was not really a politician, when he was synonymous with The Apprentice and money and, you know, riches and, all, and gold and, and all these kind of things versus more recent tracks tagged with Trump, where, of course, you know, it's all about chaos and apocalypse and um, (laughs) crisis and, you know, incompetence and and these these kind of keywords. (laughs) Yeah, dystopia, bumbling, (laughs) fool, all these kind of things. Um, But it's a really interesting, almost sort of barometer of... And in some ways, it's kind of obvious in some ways, but but in another way, it's it's kind of um, quite an interesting barometer of public opinion or library music opinion um, to think about these kind of tagging practices and how they've changed and then where some of these tracks get used.
3: Yeah, because I think what was what was very interesting in that is how, like Toby said, how it you can almost look at it as a mirror of like you said, public opinion and a very divided public opinion, because you then also sometimes found some tracks that had keywords like patriotic, great, etc. So Mm -hmm. you did also find that less, but you you still found it. And so that really was a mirror of public opinion, but also not just a mirror, mirror, because library music, of course, also contributes to how that public opinion is shaped, because then it's the music that's used in you know, programming about about Trump, although not exclusively, because uh, Toby did also look at some tracks that were tagged with Trump, but ended up in completely unrelated uh, programming, which was also very interesting. Can,
1: can you name one which which was like, wow, how did it end up there?
0: Well, I guess it's maybe not completely unrelated, but there's a documentary, Sugar Daddies, um, yep. <laughs> reality <laughs> show X on the beach, these kind on, of things. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's not that unrelated now that I think about it, you're right.
0: (laughs) Um, But I think it's it's interesting as well, you know, um, particularly when we think about something like the BBC and and things like impartiality, and that's been used a lot lately. Um, And it's interesting because music has this kind of hidden power. I think Nicholas Cook refers to music as the ultimate hidden persuader. So it's really interesting to think about um okay the the narrative could be telling us one thing but what what might the music be saying what might the music be telling us particularly when it's production music that may have been used previously used in other contexts or like we're talking about before that's been tagged in a different way to where it ends up being used so how does that kind of shape an audience's perception of um, a certain public figure or event or whatever it might be
2: yeah, that's very interesting. But a uh, quick story, I did a score for a film and the big scene, the director decided he wanted to use this established piece of music, not library but a famous band, and the cost of that piece of music was much more than I was given to go and record with an orchestra, a huge amount. And I did cover that with the orchestra, but he never, he didn't use what I covered, he used this piece of music. Two weeks before the film came out, Woolworths used that piece of music to, to run their latest campaign and literally changed the public perception of what that music yeah. was.
1: <laughs> oh, no!
2: The film I was in was a horror film, so the scene was a horrific scene <laughs> and Woolworths <laughs> made it something quite gentle. <laughs> That. and um, I, mean, I mean in a way it kind of proved i did have this argument with the director that you know you just don't know how music will be associated if you in that way yeah. anyway i mean it proved a point but it was a sad way of proving a point really because uh, <laughs> but it's a it's a fact isn't it that, that that you you have no control of what happens to your music however you write a piece and one person yeah. might use it in one way another use it another way and you just got to ride with that there's nothing you can do about that is there
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting with, with production music it, because it doesn't have that initial life, as it were. It it's only becomes a sort of thing in, in, in the public eye um, once it gets used in some kind of
3: mm-hmm. you
0: know media production or whatever it might be um so it's quite different to commercial music where you know it may have been in the charts it, it, it may have been you know performed live etc etc production music doesn't have that in the same way and i think that's why it's so interesting because it can have all these different usage and uses and people who watch you know one program that uses a track obviously won't necessarily be aware of another program that uses
3: mm-hmm. the
0: same track etc etc um and i think that's that's why it can it can be used in all sorts of different ways to all sorts of different ends
3: And and I think that's kind of where what Simon said earlier of the editors being the unsung heroes, that's where it really comes in because, you know, what you said, Toby, of it doesn't really have a life before it's used. So it's the editors who are giving it life in a way and who are associating it with, with certain things. There's um, there's a specific example, and this kind of ties into what we are, you know, what we've been discussing now of oh how where the same the same track is used in different places and what that means, and of course it's ultimately the editor who's going to give it those specific meanings by you know working them into certain programs, certain videos. There's this one library track that is abs- it's my nemesis because I've heard it in three different places, three very different places. Which is a well, one, an episode of the Great British Bake Off, which we were talking about earlier. So cupcakes, there we go again. Uh, a BBC, I think, documentary about Victorian farms, and a preview for a pornographic film. So the same track is used in these very different contexts, and it means very different things. Obviously, in these three contexts, it but was all three all yummy. D- exactly, all. Three- <laughs> I think that's where the cupcake comes in, and it's it's really all down to the editor that that um that used you know the different editors that use that same track in those contexts. And I still I say it's my nemesis because I still haven't been able to locate it to realize where, where it's come from, how it was tagged. Because I would love to see what its title and what its keywords were and compare it to all those different users. And uh, you know I'm I'm still I still hope that one day on my deathbed someone will turn to me and say, Julia, we found the track. Here it is. <laughs> um, but we'll see. You know, and it's to
0: Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be there with a, a vinyl, but yeah, yeah, with an LP.
1: <laughs> do, do you think that the usage of a track can damage the track? A certain usage of a track.
3: It's a very good question. I think, possibly, I think. Well, perhaps in the same situation that Simon was talking about the Woolworths commercial where, you know, unpredictably suddenly it's used somewhere and it's associated to something that you don't... Not something that's necessarily bad, but you kind of don't want it to have that association. If you then want to use it in something else, that's completely different. Perhaps in that sense, but that's a really good question.
0: Yeah, I think... Um... Just following on from that, I'm doing some work at the moment on this idea of interference. So when, because you've heard something in one place, you then hear it in another place and it, it kind of interferes with with the, the kind of meaning of the track. Um, yeah. And speaking to some editors and directors, you know, a few were saying, oh, you know, you'll watch something on TV and you'll think, they're using our track. Why are they using our track? <laughs> and and they, of course they know it's not their track. It's just a library track. Anyone can use it. But they have that sense of, oh, well, I don't want to use it anymore. Now they're using it. <laughs> we've got it we, we don't you know or 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 other situations where um you know they'll they'll hear they'll be searching and they'll hear a track and they'll, and they'll think oh well i heard that on a channel 5 documentary and i'm making a documentary for the bbc that's about something completely different i don't want it to sound like a channel 5 documentary or a channel 4 or whatever it might be i can't use that track now um so th- so i think there is that particularly um you know when it's quite a small world isn't it it's the kind of british tv industry um, particularly in those kind of contexts, it, it can have that sort of negative effect.
3: I had actually editors describe that as I'm... It's like turning up to a party and someone's wearing the same dress and <laughs> you just go, well, I don't want to wear that dress anymore. I had someone compare it with that. Yeah.
2: Do you think there's, um, there's a distinction made between commercial music and library music that library music is somehow not as good as commercial music? Or is that something... That's, is that history there or...? Am I imagining that?
3: Um, I think, sorry, I don't know, do you want to, if you want to go first over I can go. Yeah, I, 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 I can.
0: I think it's interesting. Um, you can be open. You can, you can say yes.
3: <laughs> you can just say I'm, yes. I'm, I'm yeah, being right, polite sorry. here,
0: but what,
2: I did used to hear, oh, it's just library music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've heard that.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting in that sort of notion of value is really interesting in terms of the some of the academic literature that's out there. Um, and I think some of that is by exclusion. like you know there's all this literature about music for film, a, a lit- not quite so much about music for television, and it's mm-hmm. it's pretty much you know ninety well ninety eight percent original scores and kind of yeah. commercial tracks, and maybe two percent probably quite generous on on library music. And I think I don't think that speaks volumes that it's something that it isn't or hasn't historically been I mean with some exceptions hasn't historically been deemed worthy worthy of study and you mm-hmm. you know you see phrases like people are forced to use library music um it's kind of soulless vapid all these kind of words um, which 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 is kind of really interesting but I think mm-hmm. as as we talked about before the the distance is is definitely narrowing um, and and a lot of libraries now are looking more towards these kind of um or a lot, a, a lot of production companies and things are looking towards these more kind of boutique libraries and kind of uh, smaller catalogues of, of much more carefully curated tracks with some kind of artist that kind of overseeing it, rather than you know here's 100 pizzicato tracks or whatever it might be. Um, kind of quality over quantity to some extent, and I think that's that's think a really I interesting change.
1: Do you don't think? Sorry, yeah. so I'm, do you know no, what
0: percentage of music on TV, British TV, is library and which
2: is? Commercial music and commissioned. Have you got numbers on that, Toby?
0: Um, I should have looked this up. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the studies I did, it was about two thirds library in the kinds of things I was looking at in British TV um, versus commercial and original scores. The other third that might be that might be completely wrong. Um, but from, the, from a kind of sample that I was looking at, that those are the kind of the kind of numbers that I was thinking. And there's various estimates out there, like, you know, the average uh, TV viewer might hear sort of 400 library tracks a day and these kind of things. Um, and I kind of wanted to dig into those a bit. And actually, you find that, yes, I mean, if you think that, you know, a tra- you might hear a track for just 15 seconds or, or you know, a single kind of hit or something. Then actually, it's quite possible over the course of a few hours of TV to hear a vast number of library tracks but not really notice them.
1: Do you think production music has an
3: image problem? I think it depends who you ask, really, because that's. uh... I'm asking you. I, I think that this kind of ties into what, you know, what, what Toby was, was saying earlier of, I completely agree with, with, uh, it's still, it, I still notice that it has kind of a, a very unfair reputation of being lesser somehow or less worthy or less interesting. But it is changing. And I think it's changing quite fast. Um, but especially in academic circles or perhaps if you're talking to I don't know a professional classical musician or someone like someone who only does bespoke scoring so if you ask and from my experience of talking to those people they will they still do have that image of library music and they still use words like elevator music or canned music which is pretty unbelievable to me because I think you know you haven't been listening to you know actively to any library music recently have you like for for you to be saying that but I think it's I think that image problem if it is there at least that that kind of very wrong perception that people have of it is changing fast and and also tying into what Toby was saying I think it's kind of undergoing the same kind of legitimizing process that happened with uh bespoke scoring for film and TV, because not so long ago, it was also a little bit frowned upon as less, no, not very serious music, as music that wasn't as good as concert music. And then now it's seen as something that's very prestigious. And, you know, who wouldn't want to be doing, you know, a project for cinema or something like that. And I think it's slowly kind of having the same path towards being more legitimised or being looked on more, more favourably. And it's exactly the same thing that happened with bespoke scoring. And it's, it makes sense because, you know, nowadays, and in fact it's always been the case, the people who do bespoke scoring for movies or TV are the same people who also write library music often. So it doesn't really make sense for it to be seen as less worthy because it's often made by the same people.
1: Should we make production music... More exclusive? Like a limited edition of an album where um, the first one who uses the track gets the track exclusively.
3: <laughs>
0: I mean again, there's there's all sorts of different models out there and, and different poses, aren't they? And they just they just served, I think, to underline the fact that it's it's a it's a complex marketplace. That the, the lines between all these different types of music are quite are quite blurred in terms of the, the way they're made, the way they're produced. Um, and, and I, I guess the yeah, I guess the thing that I think is interesting is that library music is—you know—the people that need to know about it or that want to know about it kind of know about it. Like we all know about it. We're talking to it. Your listeners, of course, are, are very, very well aware of what library music is or production music. <laughs> you know, editors know about it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there's lots of composers all the time wanting to get into it. You know, reading Dan Graham's book, um, writing those first few cues, wanting to get into 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 writing production music, which is fantastic, of course. Um, but it's interesting that. From an sort of audience perspective, um, it's still very much kind of under the radar. I don't necessarily I don't think necessarily. that's a problem, um, but it's it, it's kind of interesting. And I think it would be interesting if more people did, you know, more sort of academic research on it as well, because it's such a rich field for lots of the reasons we've kind of talked about.
2: So, guys, who who's using your research? Where's your research? Who's the end user for your research? Uh, and that's part A. Part B, is your research going to tend towards... Um, Something that ends up as numbers, figures, equations, or text, descriptions, concepts, philosophies? Where are you headed? You're probably headed in different directions, but perhaps you could both quickly answer that.
3: I'm I'm definitely on the second option of it's, it's text and descriptions and kind of examining and analysing what my interviews with composers and editors can tell us about how library music is produced and used now. Uh, it's not... It's not, you know, it's not an end use for businesses or libraries to figure out the one formula for the perfect <laughs> the perfect track titled Epic Cupcake. It's, in this case, it's more towards, um, like, an academic public. But on the other hand, that doesn't mean at all that it isn't, you know, that it can't be read or that it isn't interest, you know, interesting for people who just want to learn more about library music and who don't really know what it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, so... Um... So both kind of separately and together, we've been kind of publishing uh, journal articles, um, looking at book chapters, conference presentations, all those kind of things. Um and, and also kind of more public things like, like teaching about library music and um, library music in universities and these kind of things as well. Um, getting students to kind of uh, think about library music and also to, to write library music, a bit like I was talking about at the start. Um, and I don't know, I think we might move on to this in a minute, but Julia and I are also part of a team organising a study day or an event around library music, which we hope to kind of... Um, spread the word or get get academics and lots of other people as well thinking and talking and sort of uh, yeah analyzing library music
1: so when, when's that going to happen
0: So it's a it's called Library Music in Audiovisual Media and it's a study day um and it's by the Royal well it's it's run in tandem with the Royal Musical Association in the UK and the University of Leeds. And it's gonna happen on the 15th and 16th of September. So even though it's a study day, it's kind of over two days. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Slow learners. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) We we say study day
3: singular just to lure you into a full sense of security (laughs) and for you to think it's just one, thank goodness.
0: It's probably going to be a virtual event. We've already had interest from kind of people across the world, so it's probably going to be a. About- a virtual event or, or a kind of hybrid in Leeds and some you know with people are able to zoom in from wherever. Um, so we're really looking for sort of academic presentations about aspects of library music, but also practitioners, composers, editors, whoever it might be, or library directors, you know, to come and sort of uh, present some of their. It could be research, or it could be a kind of industry experience, um, just to kind of really open up some of these conversations. And um, often there's this kind of um, this kind of Sort of hard and fast wall between the people that are actually exactly. doing, doing the stuff so you know like like you two and the composer and, and, and whatever and also on the other side the people kind of researching it um and it's really just trying to trying to make some some of those connections and bridge bridge some of those Absolutely.
3: gaps C-
2: can i ask a, a slightly unrelated question julia well both of you guys why are there so few women writing library music compared to men I'm,
3: Oh, <laughs> now there's one for two hours. Okay. Um, so, so,
2: all right. rephrase the question: Is it changing? Is it improving? Are there going to be? A, is there going to be a better balance?
3: I, I think that slowly it's changing. I see I'm I kind of even though I've never specifically worked on that, I have been monitoring, you know, over the past seven years, libraries and kind of their efforts to bring in more women composers and to have often they have featured playlists uh, of, you know, playlists with only music by women composers, things like that. So I do think it's changing. I, I do think it's improving as for the reasons why. I think it's a little bit the same reasons why uh, you, you don't have... It's very structural reasons that are incredibly complex... And that have to do with access and uh, mm. prejudice and a lot of other things. And, you know, you still hear people saying that there are no women composers, that that's not possible. I, I still hear that. So, <laughs> so while you have that kind of mentality, it will be really hard to, for things to be as good as they should be. But I do think that it's changing. I do think libraries are making an effort to be more diverse in that sense.
1: I think it's a very difficult question because, I mean, when I, when I look at myself, it's not that I don't want women to write production music. It's that not all the women are approaching us who write production music. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a chicken and an egg situation um, as, as far as I'm concerned. It's not that we don't want women in the business. There are not mm-hmm. a lot of women knocking on the doors.
3: Yeah, and that's, that might have, you know, that has nothing to do with are they writing production music or can they write production music, but more like do they feel like this is the, like an industry that they can access? Do they feel like they have a way in? Do they feel that they'll be welcome? So it's it's a, it's, a, it's a very good way of putting it, what you said, of it's a chicken and egg kind of situation because it kind of feeds into itself and it's a very hard cycle to break in a way.
2: Well, you're right, Ferry, you know, we get approached, don't we, by lots of composers, and I, you know, most of them, particularly music for sport, I suppose, are, are, are men. I, I can't remember the last time I, I got just a sort of uh, out of the blue a woman. I mean, I'm speaking as a, a parent of two daughters, so you know, my interest is obviously that that society is inclusive, and I'd like to see more in my catalogue. But it's you know, you can't magic them, can you? All you can do is mm-hmm. air, we're doing it now, airing sort of the the appeal, really, if you like. I'd love to see it more balanced.
1: And I think our doors are open. I mean, if they approach us, we would listen to it. Yeah. yeah. So that's problem solved. More women into production music. That's from tomorrow. That's a good thing. Um, Again, back to your uh, study day, which are actually two days. Um, Would you like an editor to come to you, for example, and say, I chose this piece of music and this is what I did with it?
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> no, go go um, yes yeah, so, so we're really um, you know we're, we're hoping to put together a kind of some some industry section so like a kind of um, a round table and, and perhaps a session where um, student work can be critiqued by a, a production music composer for example those those kind of those kind of settings uh, but actually if anyone would like to come and talk to us about their 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 work and talk to hopefully it'll be a, a sizable audience it's very hard to tell it's only uh, february isn't it so it's hard to tell but um, but hopefully there'll be some uh, yeah s- s- some opportunities for that for that discussion so we'd be we'd be open to having any of those conversations anyone that would like to share um aspects of their of their work with us that'd be wonderful
3: yeah and not just from from the composer side from the side of people who work directly with libraries but in libraries but also from editors yeah, I think we'd yeah. be really interested in having that because it's also what Toby was saying earlier. I think we don't, we don't. You know, it's not library music has been. It's just a very, very, very small part of, of studies that have been done, uh, and in those studies, are, it's, you almost never look at the side of editors and of the people who use it. So, if we could get those perspectives in as well, I think that would be would be brilliant. We would love that.
1: How can our industry help you? I mean, you've got people listening now. Do do you need more data? Do you need more conversations with uh, people?
3: Well, I think anyone who is uh, not non more data but anyone who is interested in you know perhaps sharing their experiences in that setting would be would be very welcome uh, because it's it's like like we said earlier really trying to bring together not just academics and researchers but also people who have experience uh, in in the production music industry any kind of interest is very welcome. <laughs>
0: And I think also just just following on from that, just in a more, more general sense, there's obviously uh, information that a library has about their own catalogue that, you know, the users, users don't have that, that PRS, you know, the PRS don't necessarily have the kind of the, the way all that data works together. Yeah. Um, and there could be some really interesting opportunities for collaboration, you know, using if anyone's kind of has lots of data that they think, well, we're generating all this stuff. We have all this information about music use and whatever, but we're not really doing enough with it. Um, I think Julia and I could could potentially you know open up some conversations in terms mm-hmm. of um that would be really interesting for us um in terms of looking at a specific library, but also hopefully might be of interest to the library themselves in terms of um looking at some of that data in a bit more bit more of granular detail
3: maybe. absolutely that <laughs> yeah. And, and and if anyone if anyone knows also where what that track is that I mentioned earlier that it was used in the three different settings, please contact me. I would love to know.
1: Good. Well, it's uh, it's it's already time, guys. It's uh, it's it's almost sixty minutes. It's quite quickly. Uh, yeah, exactly. But we, I had a great fun. Me too. We were
2: g- great me too.
3: Yeah, you great guests.
1: Yeah. Very interesting topics. <laughs> Uh, and I hope that uh, maybe it's also something you can talk to the IPMG and the PMA mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. this is um, transcending uh, libraries on its own. It's it's an industry thing that yeah. you're trying to establish, right? Yeah,
0: that's exactly yeah. that. Yeah.
1: Okay, Simon, final question. I was just to... Or you found the piece of music that Julia is looking for? No, gonna,
2: <laughs> my usual question, just to see if you could come up with a, an idea for a guest. Another guest who you think, if you've heard some of our programs, hasn't yet been represented. I mean, obviously, an editor would be nice, but I wonder if you could think of anyone a field that we haven't really touched on.
3: Um, I yeah, I was going to say the the well, you've already said that the 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 side of the editors, but perhaps also uh, there's there's an increasing amount of people who are writing um, handbooks. Four composers of of library music. Well, Dan Graham is one of them, but you've already had him uh, on the the podcast. Uh, But there are other people who've been writing handbooks, and I think that's a really interesting side because it's kind of the informal way that a lot of composers have of learning how library music works and how it's composed. So I I think that... I I can't think up of any specific names so far, but I think that might potentially be an interesting one.
2: Great idea, yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, guys, thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and uh, I hope we meet up again in the future and see where your research takes you. I'm sure it's going to be an
0: amazing journey.
1: We're going to go to the study day, which is today, so
0: yeah, i to Please do. <laughs> we'll get your plane tickets, fine. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Good to have you. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you, guys. Okay, us. bye.
1: <laughs> bye.